0: If if you want to turn with me to the book of Numbers, we'll start our study there. Uh, This parasha is a huge parasha. Did any of you notice that? It spans all the way from Mount Sinai, then all the way across the wilderness to the threshold of Canaan, and then it leaves us hanging. And next week... We'll see what happens to the people of Israel now that they've arrived at the threshold. <laughs> the uh, Parsha has a title. Can anyone tell me what the title of this Parsha is? It's five syllables. It's with the first line of a haiku, Genevieve pointed out to me. Beha'alotcha. <laughs> Can we all say that? And it's, uh, it's talking about the menorah. The seven-branched candelabrum And it's talking about What to do with the lights Can anyone tell me What does b'ha'alotcha mean? When you what? When you set up Uh Uh-huh Yes, that's uh, Very close Um, I wonder how mine reads it there Can anyone tell me What the root verb In that term is? Beha'alotcha What's that? (laughs) It's the verb Allah. And it's the the root of the word Aliyah, to go up. So he's literally saying when you make the seven lamps, go up. When you make them, make Aliyah, you could almost say. And there's a real connection between this and the last book of the scriptural canon, the book of the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah, chapter 1. There's this mystery, there's this secret, and it left John scratching his head. And then Yeshua told him the, 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 uh, the secret. He said, as for the mystery of the seven menorahs that you saw me standing in the middle of, well, those are seven congregations in Asia Minor. So we know that there's a very strong scriptural connection between the menorah and a local messianic community. You are a menorah. We as a body of believers, the body of Messiah here in Prince Albert, are a menorah. The oil of the Holy Spirit flows through us. Uh, Yeshua, our high priest, tends to us on a regular basis and he makes that light go up from us, doesn't he? And that is why we have seven readers precisely that go up to read from the Torah. They go up just like the light of the menorah and they read the Holy Torah. And it's, you know, when you read in the anointing of the Holy Spirit, it's a... it's like you're a lamp, and there's light shining through you in this region. So that's, that's the picture that we get from the menorah. So, you know, maybe you've seen it on our website, but we have a page where, where it explains why our emblem as a congregation is a menorah. Crown of Messiah Messianic Congregation's logo has a menorah on it. And it looks like a menorah that's not only shining with light, but that's broadcasting signal, because we already have a significant internet ministry also so there's kind of a double play there but it explains on this page that as much as we cherish the the cross of Messiah and what it represents to us the cross isn't the original symbol of believers in Messiah shall we say it's not the symbol of Christianity or the church the original biblical symbol is the menorah and interestingly enough that's also the biblical symbol for national Israel maybe there's a reason it's the same symbol So that's something that we stand for Here in Prince Albert, (laughs) Um, I'm just going to take you on a guided tour through this parish. Uh, I was thinking about it, like if we come from an evangelical background, then what we're used to is a short reading of scripture, probably from Paul's letter. I letters. I read a statistic that 80% of the time, sermons in evangelical churches are based on Paul's letters. All right, so we'll get a short reading from Paul's letters, and then uh, and then we'll have a sermon on it, right? And that's not the way we do things in the Messianic Jewish community, <laughs> is it? That's not the way they did things in the early Messianic Jewish community. So, you know, that's why in, in, the, way, the way I'm teaching is I'll hit on multiple points, but I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping for each of us as individuals and families that we will come read up. Not fed up, but read up. That will come, like, read up on the Parsha. Hopefully, you know, in your personal times of devotion to the Master, uh, studying scriptures of family, hopefully you can go through the Parsha during the week. You know, and, and get those insights on a daily basis. I mean, we do not want to just connect with the Torah once a week. You know, it says, let these things, this Torah that I'm giving you, be on your heart. Talk about it when you're at home. Talk about it when you're driving to work or, you know, on the highway. Uh, Talk about it when you go to bed at night. This is something that we want to be, this is the the zone that we want to be living in, isn't it? So so that's why when we come together, I'm, you know, I'm more just kind of hitting multiple points from the Parsha that I feel are most relevant. And uh, this is our first year as a congregation. So i'm really i'm trying to lay a solid foundation in certain areas next year it may be different we may be doing more midrash next year um i may be teaching in a different style so i was maybe some of you are wondering about that oh one really cool thing about the menorah i just have to mention did you notice it's not just one light it's seven lights what does that tell us about the body of messiah seven spirits yeah it represents the seven spirits of of him I, th- I kind of wonder too though, if like, if you were like, let's say you were an angel and you were hurtling through the sky over Saskatchewan and you were looking out over Prince Albert, maybe you wouldn't just see one light. Maybe you'd see multiple lights meeting here and there and, 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 and proclaiming the word and praising the name of, of our God. And uh, for that reason, I'm okay with diversity in the body of Messiah. I'm okay with diversity in the messianic community. Um, I'm okay, even okay with multiple groups. Sometimes there are multiple groups, and it's not healthy. It's because they focus on their little differences, and then they don't want to see each other anymore. You know, I'm not talking about that. But you know, there are times when there'll be multiple groups in a region, and messianic groups, and I think that's good as long as they can come together for some occasions, mm-hmm. cooperate with each other. This is a good thing. That's that's I think perhaps a, one of the deeper lessons to be learned from the menorah. Yeah. Um, Okay, in chapter 8 of Bamidbar, the book of Numbers, uh, we learn about the Levitical tribe and their priestly job description. I have a fascinating verse from you from one of Paul's letters. We've got to get Paul in here, right? Because we're, we're still evangelical to some degree. So we need to make sure we mention Paul in every single, every single sermon. I want, so I want to read you a verse from Paul. Uh, Romans chapter 15 It's like a key to understand the Levitical priesthood. Romans 15, verse 16. I believe it is. Yes, it is. And I'll read to you verse 15 also. You get a bonus verse here. I've written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given to me from Elohim, from God, to be a minister of Messiah Yeshua to the Gentiles. Ministering as a priest, God's good news, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So, isn't this interesting? In verse 16, Paul sees himself functioning as a priest. He sees uh, his work, the congregations that he's involved with, he sees them as an offering on the altar, as it were, to God. And it's set apart by the Holy Spirit. So, based on this verse, we can, uh, we can say that there's a, there's a Pauline connection between the priestly ministry that we read about in the Torah and apostolic ministry in the New Covenant scriptures. Paul was an apostle. He sees himself also as a priest. so as we as we read through the Torah as we go on this quest to understand the priesthood better something we can bear in mind is that there's a very strong connection in Pauline theology between the apostolic ministry and what that job description looks like what that mission uh, the effects that it has are and the priestly job description uh, another example of this is messiah's own emissaries in the early jerusalem congregation acts chapter six verse four we see that they have a job description that parallels the Aaronic priesthoods it doesn't replace it it's not a substitute it's a different priesthood that messiah's emissaries are a part of but maybe they complement each other and uh, they they simply say we'll give ourselves we'll devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and to the prayers so that was what they viewed as their priestly job description as apostles um, a couple other things we can learn from this chapter at the end of the book uh, of numbers eight, it says that the priests would start their work at the age of 25. And at first glance, this can actually look like a, di- a discrepancy, a contradiction. because we read earlier in the book of numbers, in numbers four, verses two to four, that the priests start at age 30. So in Numbers 4, it says that the priest started at age 30. Then four chapters later in Numbers 8, it says they start at the age of 25. Uh, What's the explanation for this? And there's a very simple one. At age 25, the priest would enter the priesthood. He would be initiated to whatever degree. And he would start hanging out around the tabernacle more with the priests who were doing the job. He wasn't a fully-fledged priest. He was in training. So he was spending time there, he was watching and learning how things were done, and he had five years when he was uh, an apprentice, shall we say. And then at age 30, he was a fully-fledged priest, and he was able to function as such. Interestingly enough, we see that same number pop up in connection with Yohanan the Immerser, John the Baptizer, when he started, he was around age 30, and also our Savior himself, who is the great apostle of our confession he also started his ministry at age 30. So, how does this apply to us as a Messianic community here in Prince Albert and on a broader level? What it teaches us is if they, if we have people who feel called to the ministry of the word, who feel called to devote more time to prayer, if we have people who are who are uh, skilled and anointed in leading worship like Colin even. If we have people who are who are feeling a burning passion in their hearts to, to do more evangelist-type outreach or leadership, whatever. This is a good thing. Uh, we as a community should be encouraging these people, affirming these people. But you don't just turn them loose right away. The smartest thing to do is, when you have people like this, to, to bring them alongside, to start phasing them in, and to give them a season. And it could be years it could be quite a few years where it's like they're in training where where there's a where there's a phase of of being humbly accountable and leaders should always be humbly accountable but where that should be especially stressed um, you know i'm not yet thirty years old i still see myself as being in this phase like i i really value feedback from each of you you know in terms of my approach my attitude my teaching style content of what i communicate um, I just, you know, I, I know I've said that before, but I want to continue saying that. I, I welcome your feedback. I, I have people in my life that I'm submitted to. I submit major decisions to them before making those decisions. I have mentors, other congregational leaders that I communicate with. And uh, I think, you know, because we're a relatively new movement still, this is an area that we'll be continuing to dialogue about. We're still pioneering. I mean... If you have a young person, let's say here in this province, who feels called to congregational leadership, what do they do? They can't just go to Messianic seminary, can they? It's a little harder. And so this is an area where we want to start thinking for the future. We want to start seeing new leaders raised up. We want to see our movement have a solid foundation. We want to see, see it grow. And so that's a, an area that we'll, we'll just keep in our minds and continue talking about. Another another uh, cool example of this connection is uh, Yeshua's brother, Yaakov HaTzadik, uh, Jacob the Righteous. They, they call him James in English because the King James Bible, you know, they had to have James in the, the King James Bible somewhere, so they named him James instead of Jacob. But anyway, he, w- he viewed himself as a priest. Uh, there's a very strong tradition in early patristic literature, like the church fathers, that, that James would actually go to the temple area and he functioned as a priest. He, 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 he lived like a Nazarite, like a very high level of holiness. Uh, there are even legends that he would go into the holy place and he would be found praying there on his knees for hours and hours. Uh, there's just one more example of that. About James? Yes. You're not going to find that in the scriptures. That's in, that's in church tradition. But it's, a, it's an early church tradition. We'll look at Numbers 9 for a moment here too. I want to point one thing out. I, I enjoy like the stereotypical differences between male and female. You know What's the stereotype that males have uh, half the daily word quota of things that they just need to get out? As your stereotypical female um, you know often I'm in awe of the way women can relate and communicate I just in that area I am outclassed right like wow and uh, I just it's it's like um often for women everything is connected like you'll start telling one story and an hour later they'll have gone through like 30 different stories and they're all connected and it's amazing right like for me I have more of a standalone type of brain where it's like okay I have a thought so I communicate the thought and then I stand there you know Um, maybe you've noticed that even with how I teach I mean I just hit a bunch of standalone points right but anyway um you know how both of us as males and females are created in his image so both of us these stereotypical tendencies we have they're reflections of him right and I just wanted to point something out that you're only going to get in the Hebrew from Numbers chapter 9, verse 2. Um, I'll read you verse 1 also. Thus Yahweh spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they'd come out of the land of Egypt, saying, and this is how it reads in Hebrew, and let the sons of Israel observe the Passover at its appointed time. He started his sentence with and. What, What does that tell us about our Creator and the way He communicates? Huh? It seems like things are connected in, for him. Yes. <laughs> it sounds like he was just carrying on his line of communication from something else that he was saying to Moses that wasn't written down, or maybe that was simply in his mind, and then he started this this sentence with Moses. I don't know, but uh, it, it seems to maybe intimate to me that our Creator is always speaking. I mean, if you could see his daily word quota, it would be off the charts. And the beauty of it is everything that he's ever wanted to communicate, it's not just like, like millions of words, right? Everything that he's ever wanted to communicate to us, he's communicated in the person of his son, Yeshua. So, as we get to know Yeshua better, we're going to understand the Torah in a brilliant way. Uh, we are going to understand what it is that he's saying to us. Um, perhaps even more profoundly than what he could say in millions of poetic words. Well, that's what what I get out of that. So just, you know, um, make make a note in your mind that God starts his sentences with and. (laughs) Um, Chapter 9 is fascinating, though. Uh, There are two main things that I wanted to point out about it. It's about like the Pesach Sheni. It's about the second Passover. And uh, this Torah was given in direct response to an immediate need. There were some guys who were unclean and they couldn't eat the Passover because they had buried somebody. And so they went to Moshe and said, we really want to do the Passover, but we can't. What are we going to do? And uh, surprise, surprise. I mean, this is out of the box, really. This was innovative. Uh, the Almighty said, well, you know, um, they can do a second Passover in the second month at the same time. Wow. I mean, I don't know about you, but that's, that actually is kind of surprising. And we, we learned two things from this. Number one, Moses is a type of the Mashiach, isn't he? Uh, Yeshua is a prophet like Moses. So what these guys did with Moses, we can do with the Master uh, in the realm of Halakha. In the realm of how do we actually take these commandments and apply them to our lives what does that look like if you have a question about how to do a commandment how it applies to you it is wise to go to Jewish tradition and use that as an essential point of reference because they've been doing it for thousands of years but don't just do that go to Yeshua and the Holy Spirit also and say master like what's your halacha for me how how do you want this commandment applied in my life and uh, be ready for a surprise he, he may give you an out-of-the-box answer. Because Yeshua is alive and he is our prophet who, who is there to communicate personally to us. So that's, that's one thing we learned from this. The other thing is I think this is a picture of the body of Messiah in general. It says that the second Passover is like the second chance for people who missed it the first time around because they were unclean or because they were, went on a long journey. They were distanced. And uh, I look at us as the body of Messiah and we have strayed from our moorings to a remarkable degree we have we have fallen away from most of the Torah at least a certain element of it you know we still cherish the principles and I I value that but I can almost see how we as the body of Messiah we have been on a distant journey and we've missed the Passover most people don't celebrate Passover Many believers have never done done a Passover in their lives. It's like we missed the Passover because we've gone on this distant journey away from our Jewish roots. And I mean that is so evident today. Often, if someone hears that you're actually celebrating the biblical feast, the Messiah, and the early disciples themselves celebrated, they'll, they'll say, "Well, why are you what? Why are you going back to that stuff? Why are you going back to the Torah? Did you get? Did you hear that?" Why would people say that? Because our mainstream frame of reference is that we have gone on a journey away from the Torah. We, we have distanced ourselves from our Jewish roots. And that's why it looks like we're going back. And that's often viewed, it's cast in a negative light. But that is not a, that is not a negative thing. It's, that would be like, it's like the prodigal coming home. It's a good thing that the prodigal is going back. To his inheritance, it's a good thing that the prodigal is going back from the Gentile nations where he's living with the pigs, and he's coming back home to his father, and his inheritance with his father. It's a good thing to go back to the law, not to legalism. Legalism equals bad. Torah equals good. Right. So anyway, um, we, so anyway, it's really I, it just really touches me that we have a God who is giving that second chance. You know, most of us, I don't think most of us grew up celebrating Shabbat. I never grew up doing Pesach until I was 20 years old. Uh, but he is, the, he is the God of the Pesach Sheni, the second Passover. He wants to give us that chance to get in on it. And I think that's why we're here. I thank him for that. <laughs> that's something that we see from that. Um, so that nine verse... Sheni? Yeah, Sheni means second. 9 verse 13 gives the other half of the equation. The man who's clean and who isn't on a journey and yet neglects to observe the Passover, that person shall then be cut off from his people. For he didn't present the offering of Yahweh at his appointed time. That man will bear his sin. And, and this is a very neatly packaged little look at early church history. Uh, we as the body of messiah forsook the passover in favor of non-biblical celebrations like easter when given the chance uh, we chose the non-biblical over the biblical Uh, we began to stray from our roots and the example that messiah himself set and what was the result we were cut off from our people we lost our heritage in israel and the distressing ramifications of that are to the degree that we're cut off from our people that is the Jewish people we're also cut off from him who is the king of the Jews him who is a very Jewish Rabbi Yeshua Um, we're even we lose touch with the glory of God that belongs to Israel according to Romans 9 so hallelujah he's bringing us home Um, the end of Numbers 9 we see the modus operandi of the people of Israel how did they know when to move and where to go? <laughs> Numbers nine eighteen gives us a summary of it. It says, "Al pee Yahweh" in the Hebrew. At the command of Yahweh, the sons of Israel would set out, and at the command of Yahweh, they would camp. As long as the cloud settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. In the Hebrew, there it doesn't say at the command of; it says "Al pee Yahweh." It means like on the mouth of Yahweh is what it literally means. And how how? applicable for us as families for for us as a community uh how do we make decisions what is our mode of operation as a community al p at his mouth so if we have a decision to make if if we need to know where, where to go or when to go there hey we'll just stop and we'll ask him we'll get it straight from his mouth right and uh for that reason i, I very highly value the prophetic gifting in messianic congregation there's a place for those of us who have that spiritual connection to to hear what we feel is a word from him and to share that and then we can weigh that together and uh, I I really welcome that we actually see that later in this parsa it's pretty cool we'll we'll hit that in a second Um, moving on to numbers 10 we have the silver trumpets and I really love what it has to say about when when these things were blown In Numbers 10 verse 10, it says, Also in the day of your rejoicing and in your appointed feasts. So let me ask you something. What is the the hallmark tone of the appointed times, according to Numbers 10.10? They are days of rejoicing, aren't they? Now let me ask you, does the enemy of our souls want us to experience the joy of our salvation or does he want to steal that from us? So if these appointed times are days of celebration, they are times of joy. Like spiritual joy is just pulsing in the very fabric of these festivals. And if he wants to rob us of our joy, what's a, what's a really effective strategy for doing that? Huh? Yeah, just somehow get us to disconnect from the biblical festivals maybe get us to even value them less than what we should or maybe try and trick us into forgetting to plan ahead for them things like that and so we we as a community we're coming back to the biblical festivals we're discovering the joy of the holy spirit to be found there and uh, i i love that the silver trumpets were special for the priests to blow i don't know if that means that nobody else could blow them I mean, I, I, would, I think it would be really cool if we could get a couple of silver trumpets at some time. I know uh, Pastor Greg from the Church of the Nazarene, he has a silver trumpet in his office and uh, I, I've got to, I got to blow it once and it's really cool, like it would be cool if we could have those as long as we don't say that, you know, we're fulfilling this mitzvah because I don't think we have any certified Cohen, Cohen's in our midst, right? Um, but the ram's the ra- I think the ram's horn is more for your average Israelite, anybody could blow that. And uh, on days like Rosh Hodesh, you know, the new moon, and uh, other, other occasions like that. Yeah, okay, moving on to Numbers 10, a little farther in the chapter, we discover in Numbers 10, verse 14, which tribe went ahead of the other tribes of Israel when it was time for them to move. When it was time for the tribes of Israel to move, the tribe of Judah was the first to set out. And I believe that there's a spiritual principle here that applies to us as the body of Messiah today, that applies to moves of God, and that's very relevant to Messianic Judaism. Messianic Judaism is synonymous with the tribe of Judah. And most of us here in this room, including myself, the reason that we've come back to the Torah, the reason that we've embraced our Jewish roots, is a direct result of Messianic Judaism, uh, Messianic Jewish leaders that really began in the 1960s. And of course, there, there's a history that goes back much farther. That's something I, I really appreciate about First Fruits of Zion and their new publishing arm, Vine of David. Like, they, are, they have a very clear objective to help us connect with our history as a movement. That we're not just a movement that spontaneously popped out of the Jesus people movement in the 60s. Uh, We have roots. Uh, We have people who were forefathers in the Messianic Jewish community all the way back in the 1800s, who were laying the foundation, who were sacrificing so much. And it's because of them that we are here today in Prince Albert, returning to the Torah, uh, celebrating Shabbat, doing things like that. And of course, our roots stretch back much farther than that, don't they? They stretch all the way back to the first century, to the original uh, messianic community in Jerusalem, shall we say? So I, I'm, I'm just, I'm interested to see uh, where that trajectory takes takes many of us. The Vine of David um, publications that are coming out with the history on messianic Judaism right now. Here's something cool. Just like. Judah pictures the Jewish people, Messianic Judaism, uh, breaking ground, going on ahead, uh, pioneering the way. Did you notice who went directly after the written word, which is pictured by the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God? The tribe that followed directly after that was the tribe of Ephraim, and then the tribe of Manasseh, the sons of Joseph and uh, we've been discussing how on a prophetic level Joseph is a picture of believers from the nations right so let me ask you if you want to see believers from the nations get in on this thing then what is it going to take based on this principle (laughs) number one his presence it has to be all about his presence because the tabernacle symbolizes his presence and Ephraim and Manasseh came right after the tabernacle and number two what was it what was the tabernacle all about well what was at the very core of it it was like mike mike says it was the rocks in the box <laughs> the rocks in the box yeah the written word of god um the the, uh, the atonement the like the kapara the uh, that was on on the written word and like you said his glory so you know as we, as we continue on as a congregation as we grow let's, let's always remember that emphasis the presence of God His written word staying biblical and uh, the gospel that's pictured by the sprinkled blood on the atonement seat that is what is going to be the drawing card for believers from the nations uh, that's, that's how I see it um, Colin, could you just flip that ahead for us here? There's an interesting, uh, some people call them the tittles of the Torah. There's an interesting aberration in the text here. Uh, you can go one more. That's the picture of the menorah. Okay, um, did you notice that in our worship t- time we sang that song, Arise, Yahweh, and let your enemies be scattered? I wanted to sing that because this is the, this is the passage where we have this. At the end of Numbers 10. And uh, there's this little section at the end where it has this little one-line piece of liturgy, shall we say, that Moses would say. And uh, at the beginning of it and at the end of it, we have the Hebrew letter Nun, and they're inverted. They're turned upside down. Can you see them there? There's one right here. I'm not that tall. Jump up and down. Okay, yeah. Right there. There's a letter Nun turned upside down. Thanks, Colin. And uh, then there's another one right here and they're like bookends and this is fascinating in early Jewish tradition they they would view this passage as a book of the Torah in and of itself What Moses said when the ark would set out and when it would return it's like a book in and of itself it is so profound and interestingly enough if you view it through that traditional Jewish understanding then how many books are in the Torah Got to ring the bell for this. This is Jewish tradition. I'm sorry I don't have the bell here today, but yeah, there are seven. That's interesting. Uh, anyway, what's, what's the profound message in what Moses said? Maybe it's just this. When Yahweh rises, his enemies are scattered. So, if we believe that Yeshua, if we, if we were to call him Yahweh Yeshua, as the early believers did, then when Yeshua was raised, What happened? Amen. So what's our ultimate power source as believers when we are in the midst of spiritual combat? The resurrection of Messiah is what we always refer back to because that is our ultimate power source. When we stay connected with the resurrection dynamic, then we will walk in that same triumph as Messiah did. It's like it's the very core of how we, uh, how we think and how we operate and how we do spiritual business in the spiritual warfare realm. Well, yeah. Do you mean like seven? So is it the one is when the ark moved and the other was when the stopped? Are those two separate ones? Or no, it's like a, the little passage from Numbers 10.35 right. and then on to the next verse. So if, if, and this isn't like literal, right? This is just a then that would be one book, and then the first half of Numbers would be one book, and the second half after this little oh. mini-book mini would be the, the third book in Numbers. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Okay. Um, I wanted to point out one t- thing, too, about Shavuot, in connection with Shavuot, because we just celebrated it. There is such an awesome picture of the Shavuot experience in Numbers 11:17, 17. It's uh, where the Holy Spirit is being transferred. And it just says this, Then I'll come down and speak with you there, and I'll take of the Spirit who is upon you, and will put Him upon them. That is a picture of what the Father does with Messiah and you. Just, just picture the Father saying to His anointed Son, King Yeshua, I will take of the Spirit who is upon you, and will put Him upon Wayne I'll put him upon Genevieve I'll put him upon summer that's that's the gospel right there isn't it the gift of the Holy Spirit just think about that the same spirit who was upon Yeshua and empowered him to do the works of the kingdom and bring healing into people's lives and proclaim the Word of God dynamically and relevantly that same spirit the Father takes that spirit and he puts him on you too And you find that same spirit moving through you and speaking through you and living deep in your core. And you begin looking like Messiah. Wow, hey? So, yes, that's correct. When you take out the Sefer Torah, like the Torah scroll, then they sing that, Arise, let your enemies be scattered. Yep. And there are a couple other verses too. You know, I... You know, on, on a side note, on a personal level, I would love to have a Torah scroll at some point for a congregation. I don't know if we would want to do all the liturgy every week, but it would be nice to do that at least once a month or something, just so we all know it. There's something really special about taking out the Holy Torah and walking around the congregation and, and singing that, Arise Yahweh, and singing about you know uh, the voice of Adonai from Psalm whatever it is, in the 20s, I think. Yeah, let's start praying that the Father will bring us a f- like 10 men so that we can have a, a minion every week. Yes, Abba, we're just going to put that in as a, on our wish list to you, Father. Yeah, we request that you would bring us a, a minion on a regular basis. I have one thing to share with you from the book of John. It's a joke that I like to say to shock people. I believe in salvation by works. I'm just going to come out of the closet right now and say it. I believe in salvation by works. Your question, your question may be, what works are you talking about? Well, see, in John 6.29, it says what the work is. John 6.29 says, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He sent. So I believe in salvation by works, as long as that work is faith. Our work is to believe in him whom he sent. I, I you know, I, that's wordplay, right? But I love wordplay. I love jokes like that. I love people like giving me this look and I can tell they don't have a clue how to respond. And then I say, yeah. Because in John 6 29 it says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. That's my work. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, the master in the Capernaum synagogue, he gave this drosh on how he's the bread of life. And we actually have some challah that we could enjoy for oneg for, for and maybe we could remember how Yeshua is the bread of life as we do the bracha for bread today Hey, maybe we can end there um, okay I, bet I have to tell you guys what that is you're gonna be like why does he have a picture of a moth um, Yeshua in John 6 he said John was a, li- a-, a light that was burning and shining and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light well did you know that the Hebrew word for rejoicing well one of them like Sos uh, tasis it's in the sheva brachot*, the seven blessings for marriage um, it's a moth it's the same word as a moth and why is that? because somehow in the Hebraic mind the picture of wild exuberant rejoicing is like the way a moth just goes hurtling around a flame at night have you ever seen that? he's, he's almost out of control what? he just can't resist usually too yeah So anyway, that's why I had that there. I thought you'd enjoy it. And there's a picture of the Capernaum Synagogue where Yeshua gave most of the drosh in John 6. Thank you for joining us in this message. I pray that it's been an inspiration to you and your discipleship to Yeshua the Messiah. Crown of Messiah is a relatively small congregation with a massive mission. We're not just making disciples and teaching the Word of God here in our city. We're also doing that internationally through vehicles such as the internet. It is our joy to offer you these messages for free at absolutely no charge. At the same time, we do have ongoing overhead expenses. It costs us something to produce these teachings and get them out to you. And we would appreciate it if you would, in turn, support our work in a practical way. Help us cover some of our basic expenses. You can do that by going to our website, crownofmessiah.com. And going to the donate page where you can make a one time donation or you can set up a monthly automated donation. I'm reminded of the words of Yeshua's Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6. He said, Let the one who is taught the word share everything good with his teacher. So if you're being taught the word by us, we would appreciate it if you would take the words of Yeshua's Apostle seriously and make some type of return for the blessing that we are giving you for free. That way, we'll all be in it together and we will be a team accomplishing the mission that Yeshua has given us. And you will go from only being a receiver to also being a giver. If you're like most people, finances are tight. We understand that. Finances are tight for us too. That's why we need people like you to come alongside us and to back us in the work that Yeshua has called us to do. Thank you so much for making that donation at CrownOfMessiah.com and thank you for becoming a team member with us. We appreciate it.